Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Pavlo Simtakitis, but to his millions of fans worldwide, he is better known simply as Pavlo, or the Lord of the Strings. Pavlo is a master guitarist who specializes in a very lively Mediterranean style of instrumental music with 17 albums and four PBS television concert specials, including his most recent Live from Santorini, Greece. On Saturday, October 28th, Brampton On Stage presents Pavlo Live at the Rose Brampton. Please visit bramptononstage.ca for full info and, of course, to get your tickets. And here is a fun fact that you might not have known. Despite Pavlo being a true world artist literally known around the globe, he is also one of ours, a native Torontonian who I can only assume also bleeds blue and white, but we will find out. <laughs> Welcome, Pavlo, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm fantastic. And I'm in uh, Denver, Colorado. <laughs> Excellent. Now, I don't know if you're a college football fan, Pavlo, but Colorado is the center of the world these days with Deion Sanders. Are you sensing uh, the excitement around the Colorado Buffaloes? Uh, well, I got in at 3 a.m. last night, so I haven't sensed anything. <laughs> and I don't, wa- I don't watch football, unfortunately. But I do love okay. hockey. <laughs> well, good. Well, we'll talk about that. I'm glad to hear that. How is your current tour going? It's going great. It's going great. We just did 13 cities in 13 days. A day off, if you want a cuddle day. I was three flights on our day off. Uh, woke up in Denver, and we're ready to do another two nights here. It, it, it's been it's a dream, Andrew. I pinch myself every morning that I get to do what I love. Well, we're going to talk about your touring because it's extensive, and to have that attitude still is amazing. I want to ask where you make your home when you're not touring, Pavlo. Uh, I live in Tampa, Florida. You are a smart cookie. I'm jealous. That's uh, a good move to be living in Tampa, Florida. When were you last in Toronto, and do you, do you still have family here? Oh, yeah. Uh, my family's all there. Um, my sister, my parents, my cousins, just my wife and I, my daughter with the Florida. But I was just there... Uh... About three weeks ago. I mean, I, I go up and down, I don't know, 20 times a year. Excellent. Well, let's please go all the way back at the Pavlo Simtakita story. As noted, you are a Torontonian. Where were you born and raised? And please describe your upbringing. Well, I was born and raised right on the Danforth in Toronto. I think literally on at Papin, the Danforth. Um, and uh, I had an amazing childhood, man. I mean, you know, I uh, grew up in a very cool neighborhood and I grew up uh, like every kid you know um, playing hide and seek with the fire hydrant in front of the house that was our focal point you know and and all that but I loved music and at the age of 10 I picked up the guitar and the hide and seek stopped and the ball hockey stopped and it was 10 hours a day for years and years of just practice 
Well, before we get onto that, do you want to give a shout out to your junior high and your high schools? Well, yeah. I mean, I went to Earl Beattie <laughs> in Toronto up uh, to grade eight, went one year to Danforth Tech, and then we moved up to the Don Mills and I went to Victoria Park for high school. And of course, York University, you got yes. your degree in Harris Institute. You also did studies. But let's go back to the beginning a little back because your parents are from Greece, emigrated to Canada. Now, your dad was a furrier. And may I suggest this is an unexpected profession from a man from Greece because the weather doesn't match up to what I expect. Yeah, it's really funny. So I don't even lie. Is that on Wikipedia? No one knows my dad's a furrier. Well, he's retired. You know, listen, my dad came from a place called Castoria. Castoria, which I later went and actually did a PBS special there. For whatever reason, and all of, yes, Greece is hot and all that, but this town specialized in the fur trade. Incredible. 30,000 workers in this little city. They were from a small village, so they would go to the city and work. So that's why the majority came to Canada, Hudson Bay of Canada. I mean, you know, this, the Canada was, was, was born on the fur trade, as many would know, you know, the Hudson Bay Company. So um, that's why they naturally came here and they worked very hard and, you know, and, and they did well for themselves, you know. That's great. And, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish in the Spadina, as you know, being a Toronto boy, uh, Spadina was famous for this furrier. So it's interesting. It, was, it wasn't just the... And Jewish. They yeah. did the whole fur trade for decades. Yes, of course. Now, as you noted, you had an older cousin when you were 10. He showed you the lick to a Beatles song, got you going. You studied classical guitar, but grew up with Greek music and Greek culture. However, Pavlo, you first performed in rock bands, wedding bands, and even in a Rush tribute band to get your career going. Is that correct? If you're Canadian, you must be in a Rush tribute band as a guitarist. That's got to be part of your upbringing. No, no question about it. <laughs> now, you are proof that doing what you love will lead to success because for the first decade, you didn't make a petty. What turned things around for you, Pavlo? You know... So like like you said, as a teenager, I was in all kinds of bands and everything else. Um, I finally, and I'm a writer, like everything I play is my own music. That's very important to me, you know. Of course, I'll play a couple of classic songs in the night in my concerts, but 99% is, it's all my music. Uh, and I fought for that. Like, how do I explain? Like, you know, when I was writing in this Mediterranean style, everyone but laughed at me. When I say that, I'm talking about the labels at that time. It was still in the 90s. The record business was still run by by labels, whether they're independents or majors. And I got turned down by every record company. Like, what is this? Greek music? The Gypsy Kings are happening. Can you be more like the Gypsy Kings, you know? And I'm like, well, I love the Gypsy Kings, but, you know, I'm Pablo, the Greek boy from Canada. <laughs> so I I really fought hard to to write, to play the music that I wanted to do. And I was prepared to be broke for the rest of my life as long as I knew the stuff that I was writing was, re, you know, the, was 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 coming from me, man. I wasn't following no trends or anything like that. And maybe I would have reached, reached success earlier if I was more like Otmar Lieber or Gypsy Kings, but I didn't. I stuck to my guns and man, did it work out? <laughs> well, it sure did. It took some time. Took some time. <laughs> it did take time, but you stuck with it. So in 1998, you released your first self-titled album. As you noted, Pavlo, record label executives did not know what to do with your music. Instead yeah. of embracing this sound, as you allude, it's too ethnic. There's no market for this kind of music. They even said, get rid of the bazooki. I apologize for not being Greek. What is a bazooki? It's like the Greek version of a mandolin, so to speak, you know. It's just got this beautiful, it really is the Greek sound, you know. And 
and I don't play bazooka. I play guitar, but my music was infused with it right from the beginning. I, I just it just felt right. It felt natural, and really, my guitar playing for the guitar players out there. I have a very linear style. I almost play like a bazooka player in a way, you know. Like Sinatra said, you have to do it your way. You did it your way. So despite little to no radio airplay, how did you become a star? Well, this this is the secret that I knew that the labels didn't know. At the time, I was playing in craft shows, like in Toronto, it's a one-of-a-kind. I don't know if it's still there, the one-of-a-kind craft show. sure is. Okay. Well, it happens two times a year. Uh, I used to make deals there. I'd say, listen, just let me play for free. I'll just stick myself in some corner um, and let me sell my CDs. Well, I would sell thousands of CDs, you know. So I knew there was a market. The labels did not, and that's why I was forced to own my own label right from the get-go. And I, that's it's been like that ever since. You know, I just I just do different distribution deals around the world, but I own my own label and I own all my own masters as a result. So in a way, I want to thank all the majors of the '90s for turning me down, because I ended up in the case where I own everything. Uh, I've ever written, publishing, masters, it all. So that really helps down the road, kids. Own your stuff. That's a great message. We're, I want to talk to you a little more about that, Paolo, because oh. you were ahead of your time with that. But your real bread and butter, as you've alluded, is touring. Let's talk touring. You've basically been consistently on tour for 25 years, dating back to 1998. You've done over 3,000 headlining concerts. How many shows a year do you typically do, and, and what size are the venues normally? Um, typically I'll do over a hundred, like a hundred to 150. There's been years where I've done 200 cities, uh, but really a hundred, 150 is my average. And, uh, my venues are anywhere from like 500 to the 3000, like the Massey Hall, you know, 500 to about 2,700, 3000 in there with the, with the majority probably around a thousand. And I assume these are more soft seaters as opposed to uh, festivals. No, they're all soft seaters. I mean, early in my career, I did do festivals, which were fun, but they only happen in the summer, so you can't do it. You know, can't make a career out of it. So, yeah, it's all soft seaters. It was really my goal, right from the get go, to be able to go and do my own shows wherever I wanted. And at the time, I didn't care if it was a hundred people, fifty people, as long as it was my show. I wanted to do it in my show. Very adamant about that, and uh, and it worked out. I play my own concerts in theaters around the world now. Well, let's get real here. Pavlo, we are the same age. Some days I can barely get out of bed. How are you handling the rigors of touring at age 54 as opposed to age 24? Now, you know what? I I just did 13 cities in 13 days. So um, that's about as hard as it gets, you know. And then, you know, day off and continue on. I don't know, man. Like, that's all I've ever done, Andrew. Honestly, like, you know, even before the 25 years, I was still playing concerts. Just I wasn't making any money. You know, so I've been probably playing real concerts for 35 years, I guess. You know what I mean? So I don't know. I don't think any differently. I, I just go. I, there's just nothing. I mean, listen, I, I, I don't want to. Of course, we eat well. We sleep the best that we can sleep. You know, there's no fooling around. I mean, those stories of those rockers drinking, you know, Jack Daniels and going on to the next city, they, I, that's actually not possible. I mean, maybe they would last for four or five days, then they would like collapse. You can't do that. You got to be very healthy on the road, you know. Well, I've enjoyed you live in concert. And one of the fascinating things is your flair with your guitar picks as you you literally fling them all over the place. How many picks do you go through in a show? And do you have a pick sponsor? No, I just buy them. Uh, Although they do actually make the picks for me, uh, Dunlop. I I work directly with the company. 
so they have this real pointy edge that I love. But I go through about 5000 a year. And how many guitars do you own? And, of course, I have to ask if you give them names. No. So with the guitars, I mean, I have, at any given point, I probably have at least 100 lying around. But what I do, so there's a company called Godin out of Montreal, beautiful company. They make my guitars. They're, they're Pavlo guitars made by Godin. And every night in concert, I actually give my guitar away. So I can't give them names because I would run out of names, you know. Um, I call it the gift of music, basically. So every night the guitar that I play, I give to someone in the audience. And uh, it feels good. I love it. I've given over 1,500 so far. Well, that is really unprecedented. And I'm sure uh, the, the fan that receives it must be just overwhelmed. That's it's quite a thing to go to a concert and come out with a guitar. It's spectacular. I mean, the feeling that I get when I give it to someone and they just lose their minds is this, it's just so gratified. And really what I do it for is I just try to get more guitars into the world. I just think it'll soften things up and maybe make it a little bit more communal. And honestly, like now I've been doing it for like 10 years. So I've already seen people saying, yeah, I want it in Toledo, Ohio, and I've already been playing it for four years. I want it in San Diego. And I've been playing it for seven years. And they've become guitar players. Like, how cool is that? You know? That is cool. And it, it's not something you're giving them to put up on their wall. It, you're giving them something to get them interested in the music. To play it. Exactly. But you, of course, are very accessible. Even after all your thousands of live shows, you still love to do the meet and greets afterwards. I do, because I, I'm, a, I'm a people's person, man. I mean, you're like, you know, I, 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 I love to perform. I love to perform my music, and then I love to talk to the people that have just spent two hours of their life with me. I mean, they don't have to do that. I never take that stuff for granted, maybe because I didn't really have any success till I was a little bit older. You know, I didn't really have any success till I was like 28, really. So when people come down, and I don't care if it's 400 or 1,700, I'll go out and talk to as many people as I can. I enjoy it, and I really appreciate them coming down and, and spending some time with me, you know? That's great. A man of the people. That's great. The musicians that make up your band, Pavlo, have they changed much over the years? Do the bandmates and do the roles change? No. So I keep the same band. Of course, I've changed because I've been doing this for so long. I've changed members, but I'm not. I don't pick up giggers, if you know what I mean. Like uh, these are. This is my family. So Gina Maurizio Percussion has been with me for 23 years. Um, Curtis as a bass player. One of the best has been with me for over 10 years. And the latest addition, Eddie Payton, has been with me for over two years, you know. Uh, I like to keep the same guys every night. I have to. It's, it's you know, it's about what happens off the road as well. You know, you've got to get along. We all love coffee, you know, thank God. You know, um, and uh, we have a lot of cylinders. But also on stage, when you have this, like, these guys are all musicians of the highest caliber. But when you're on stage with the same musicians, Every night, you get to another level. I mean, Eddie and I, Eddie Payton and I, we're doing harmonies that are just like, you can't do them with giggers. Like, we work this stuff out in every sound check and refine it and add something else and take away, and even with the percussion, we're always just refining stuff. So when you see us, man, there's a lot of intricacies, ha intricacies happening, you know, that you can do only with people that you perform with every day. It's a team sport, essentially. No question. Absolutely. As important as your bandmates are, is your hands, Pavlo, like George Costanza. Do you have hand insurance, and what do you do to keep your your money makers, so to speak, in good shape? 
you know, I don't even think about it. I have no insurance. Um, and uh, uh, I think the less you think about it, the better. You know, you don't want to bring focus to something and then something happens. No, I, I mean, I'm very careful. Like, I've been playing guitar for, what, 43 years. So at this point, a lot of people start getting, you know, carpal tunnel, tendonitis, all this kind of stuff. I don't have anything because I'm very conscious about it. Um, as a kid, I was telling you, I was playing about 10 hours a day practicing. These days, you know, I mean, I do a concert a day. That's two hours right there plus sound check. I don't play that much after. Unless I'm writing a song or working on new songs, I don't really play beyond that. You know, you got to be very careful and really pace it, you know. Like right now, I'll be honest, 13 days in a row, my hands are a little like, you know, I can feel them, you know, so I, I'm not playing any guitar until I hit that stage tonight, you know. Well, take us behind the scenes, if you will, the logistics of touring, and I guess it's changed over your career, but you're flying, your your guitars travel with you, or how do you send them, and how do you make sure they're kind of stay delicate and in good shape when, when they get to the venue? Yeah, so I carry a minimum of three guitars with me, and then I have Godin ship them, drop ship them to the cities ahead. Um, don't I, you know? So I have to not carry fifteen guitars at any given time, but I always have at least three. And these days, when you get to a venue, you don't have to bring all the equipment; you just plug in, and, and I assume that's a change from the, the old days of touring. Yeah, yeah, the PA systems in the venues that I play, they all have built-in systems. Uh, we don't really have elaborate setups. It's all about the music and the musicianship in my concert. So we basically, we, you know, all the guys have really great equipment, like guitar-wise, bass-wise, percussion. And um, and we have little, you know, some guys have little preamp boxes. and Plug in and go, honestly. It all fits in a minivan. <laughs> Excellent. Now, I can guarantee that you are tired of talking about this, but it's such a crazy story, Pablo. I would not be doing my job if I did not ask you about your victorious 2002 copyright infringement lawsuit against some unknown guys by the name of Jay-Z and R. Kelly. Let me set this up for the listeners, if I may. Megastars R. Kelly and Jay-Z sampled your music without any notice nor permission and made their smash hit top 10 song, Fiesta, based on your original melody from your song, Fantasia. And by the way, this was no small unintentional mistake as your actual guitar work was lifted and placed repeatedly into their song Fiesta no less than 27 times. Pavlo, how'd you find out about this issue? How did you end up suing Jay-Z and R. Kelly? And what was the outcome of your lawsuit? Well, um, I got into my car one day in Toronto, turned on the radio, and I didn't recognize the song, but I immediately recognized my guitar. I also produced my own albums, you know, so I knew exactly, I'm like, oh my God, that's my guitar. How did this happen, you know? Um, so that was the initial sort of shock of it all. Uh, and this is where I credit Harris Institute for the Arts. So after York, I went to Harris and I studied music business. And that's actually, you know, at this point, I'm about 24, I think, 23, 24. At that point is when I really started to learn the music business. So I knew how to go about it, but I also knew I had a very small chance of winning. But my goal... <laughs> was just to raise enough noise so I can be heard. I'm like, hey, this little guy in Toronto knows you did this, you know? So anyhow, um, make a, a very long story relatively short. I uh, sued him, uh, and Craig Parks was my lawyer, uh, who was incredible. And um, we basically knew that they would not, they would, you know, it, it was Zamba. I mean, Zamba, BMG. Zamba at that time was the biggest label on the planet. Britney Spears, NSYNC. Oh, my God, the Backstreet Boys. They were huge. And, of course, Ari Kelly was with them at the time. So that's who we were suing. 
I was like a nothing, you know, to them. But what I did is we put the music through an audiograph. So even lawyers in a boardroom, if they didn't have any ears, would say, well, if this in fact is the case, these two lines do look identical. And that's why they took us serious right from the beginning, you know. And uh, he, Arkel, was going through other troubles at the time, which he's now in jail for. So we basically said, it took us about two and a half years, I think, two years, two and a half years, and we settled out of court. So I ended up winning, and I own 25% of the publishing. Good. So you got your victory. Because, you know, I'm, I'm no lawyer, but it, to me, if if it, if they got kind of caught red-handed, so to speak, I was going to say, why wouldn't they just admit it, say, hey, apologize, negotiate a settlement instead of going through all this through court? But I guess that's not was, the way the world works. It was a different time. And it, to be honest with you, my lawyer even said, I told him, hey, listen, if they can give me credit, I'll, I'll bypass it all. We'll figure it out. And they said no. But the funny thing is, does it matter? This, I still got credit for it because I ended up twenty five percent. The thinking was so weird, right? Yeah. And, but I'm I'm happy. That worked out the way it did. Well, I don't I, I don't want to invade your privacy, Pablo. But do you still get good residual checks as the now co writer of Fiesta? Yeah. To be honest, it was great up until our Kelly, like a couple of years ago, went to jail. So a lot of the radio stations boycotted his music. You know. Um, so in North America, it really went down to almost nothing. But it does get played around the world. I mean, it was, because Jay-Z is in it, um, it was a huge song. Sold 10 million albums with all the greatest hits and everything else that was involved and the hits of the 2000s, all that stuff that was going on at the time. So it, it is a global, like, song. So, yeah, royalties still come in, you know. Hopefully one day Jay-Z wants to bring it out of the catalog and you'll uh, he'll have to hook up with you. Well, I'll tell you a great quick story. Jay-Z and R. Kelly were supposed to go on tour. It was 45 cities, arenas. And as you know, as a writer, you get publishing from the songs that are played at the concert. So I had already worked out, because the shows were instantly sold out. 45 cities. I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm going to make X amount. They did one show in New York City. Jay-Z, R. Kelly get into a fight, cancel the whole tour. So, <laughs> Not good. Yeah. Anyhow. Well, that's the business, right? Yeah. As noted, you have had not one, but four major PBS television specials. The last one was actually in Greece from the island of Santorini. You were the first foreign artist to film a television concert special on the island of Santorini. Pavel, I understand that there literally were no appropriate amphitheaters on the whole island. You had to build your own. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that one took about seven years to put together. Um, And the reason for it is... I always think of the best idea, and logistics comes later, and that's my problem. Like, you know, I want I want to come up with something, and then I realize how hard it is to do. But I do it. So in that case, there's no... I, I wanted the AGC behind me as I played on this cliff, and I couldn't find an amphitheater. So I found a flat piece of land where they land the helicopters, and I uh, and I rented it. So there was no helicopters for a few days. But I rented that piece of land and created a concert venue. So when you see that show on television, that's you know the flattest piece of land I can find on Sadurini on the cliffs. You know, <laughs> I, I have seen it. It is creative. It looks fantastic. And I, I have to ask, how awesome was it for you to perform and film this huge special from your family's homeland of Greece? It was amazing, man. I mean, again, these are pinch me moments, you know, and all those TV shows I've done, I produced them. Like, I put them together uh, only because I don't want to say I'm a control freak, but I just have such, I have a lot of vision in terms of, I have distinct vision in terms of what I want to do with my career, you know, and it's it, it, it makes a lot of work for me, but it's so gratifying when I get it done 
I, I just keep going, you know, and it was amazing. It was amazing. Now you are an international artist, South Korea, Taiwan, Japan, China, they're all big markets for you. And I found this kind of surprising, but I guess it makes sense because your music is instrumental and therefore I guess the lyrics don't matter, so to speak. That's it's exactly it. Yeah, South Korea, Japan. I mean, that's why I, I have such success. And the art guitar loving cultures, you know, especially classical guitar. Um, so, you know, I, I'll never forget the first time I got a call from a promoter in South Korea saying, hey, you know, I want to bring you to concert. I'm like, I don't even have a record deal there. And this is a long time. I said, oh, no, no, everyone's got your album. It was, the, it was the days of burning CDs, you know. So I'm like, okay, he sent me the deposit. Boom, my first concert was in front of a 1,000 people. I couldn't believe it in Seoul, you know. So, yeah, the guitar-loving uh, uh, cultures, and there's no barrier. So, yeah, that's that's one advantage of being instrumental. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now, residencies are kind of all the rage these days. I want to ask if you've played Las Vegas, and have you ever considered or had the opportunity or thought about doing a residency? No, I played Vegas like once or twice a year. Uh, I love it. Um, residencies, not at this point. I really enjoy touring and seeing different places and um, you know, I mean, one time for fun, in my 20th anniversary of touring, which would have been five years ago, I did 20 nights in a row at the Jazz Bistro in Toronto. And every night I would have a different guest, like Kim Mitchell would be my guest one night, Rick Emmett another night, Mark Jordan another. It was so cool, you know. Um, so I guess that was kind of a residency. It was more for fun, but it was 20 years, 20 nights at the Jazz Bistro. That was fun. That was That's great. Now, another notable performance for you was in April 2001. You performed for someone who was then just a prince, but who is now the king of England. What do you recall about the experience of performing for King Charles? Uh, it was incredible. It was incredible. At the time, I think I was in Florida, and my then manager called me and said, you got three days to get up here, kid. And I'm like, what? You're playing for Prince Charles. Uh, at that, he, he, so what happened is uh, he selected seven artists, uh, me, uh, Circus Olay type of act, and a few others I can't remember. And what people don't realize is his father actually was born in Greece, in Kefalo, in Kerkera, uh, Corfu. Uh, Prince, um, oh my, I was, I was Philip. Yeah, Prince Philip was born in Greece. Uh, so, so, and, and in Corfu. Uh, so, uh, Prince uh, Charles had great memories there, and, uh, you know, as a really young kid. Going back, and so he knew the bazooki. You know, when he saw the bazooki, my band, he's like, Yeah, it's a Greek. So we had a really great conversation, you know, about it. He was very familiar with it. That's great. Now, of course, talking about Toronto, we have to talk about Toronto venues. Massey Hall, which has just undergone a significant renovation, you have played there. Yes. Yeah, I just played there. The last time was last November with the renovation. I love it. I mean, Massey is just, it's beautiful, man. And, you know, um, I've played all the venues in Toronto, obviously, throughout my career, but Massey is the best one. It just is a lot of history because I went there as a kid, you know, watching um, my favorite artists. And, you know, you can imagine, like, over the years, you know, Gordon, Gordon Lightfoot used to come out to my concerts and he'd always come out if he was home. And for me to be on stage at Massey and have Gordon in the eighth row, oh my God, like, I, I, you know, again, another pinch me moment, you know, real special times. Well, let's talk about that. The late Gordon Lightfoot was, as you know, a huge fan of yours. You did an instrumental version of If You Could Read My Mind. It was endorsed by Gordon Lightfoot himself. So maybe you want to share the story of how you first kind of got in touch with him. 
Yeah, well, Gordon, so Bernie Fiedler was my manager at the time, and Bernie Fiedler is the, the one who put on all the famous Gordon Lightfoot concerts at Massey Hall since 1967. So he connected us. And I, you know, I always thought that Gordon's melodies were just as spectacular as his words and his lyrics. So that's why I wanted to do an instrumental version, you know, of one of his tunes. And there was no way I would release it without his blessing, you know. So I did a version of, if you could read my mind, sent it to Gordon. He actually called me personally and told me he loved it, which just made my, you know, again, another pinch me moment. Like, we're talking about Gordon Lightfoot here, you know. So I recorded it. It's on my Six Ring Boulevard album, and I'm actually playing this particular song on tour right now. Excellent. Well, that's great. Now, you also had a 2009 collaboration with Rick Emmett from the noted Toronto power rock trio Triumph. You shared with him both an album and a tour. How was your experience with Rick Emmett? Amazing. Rick is awesome. You know, again, another childhood-like guitar hero of mine. And to be on stage uh, performing with Rick, we did 65 concerts together. Uh, We did an album together. It was nominated for a Juno. It was amazing. And he's a really cool guy and an amazing guitar player. Now, this is neither here nor there, but when you talk about Rick Emmett, it makes me think of another guitar virtuoso, the late, great Edward Van Halen. I'm just curious, Pavlo, if you have any thoughts on Eddie Van Halen and if you were a fan of his uh, signature style. Huge. Are you kidding me? I was a huge fan. Who who wasn't? Yeah, he was an innovator. And uh, I would study his licks as a teenager. Oh, my God. I learned everything note for note. Eruption, I was playing like at the age of 13, you know. Yeah, I I love all the guitar players that were truly following their own path. Eddie Van Halen, Ingve Malmsteen. Those kind of people that that were ju- not just great players, but they were they were innovative, doing things that nobody else was doing at the time. You know. Now, years ago, you stated your goal was to one day collaborate with Sting from the Police. Pavlo, were you ever able to make contact with Sting? No, never happened. But it's it's a work in progress. <laughs> yeah, I, I I would love to do it. I think it's 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 in the cards that Sting and I should collaborate. So I'm just working towards it. Excellent. Well, I'm. I think he may be a listener. So hopefully, Sting, you gotta get in contact. This will make it all happen. Woof. Let's talk about a really surreal experience for you, Pavlo. You used to drive in the car listening to your dad's eight-track tapes of Jose Feliciano. And fast forward to later on in your career, you actually played and toured with the great Jose Feliciano. This must have been huge for your dad. Did you ever get an opportunity to broker a meeting between your father and the great Jose Feliciano? Yeah, another incredible moment in my life. My father was a huge influence in my life, and he would play Paco de Lucia, Jose Feliciano in the car. So you can imagine the feeling that I had backstage at the first concert that I did with Jose, saying to my father, Dad, this is Jose Feliciano. Jose, this is my father, George. What an incredible time. Like It's it's one of the moments I'll never forget. You know, listening to him because my dad played, and I introduced him to the man himself. Was It was a really cool moment in my life, for sure. That is the definition of surreal. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Pablo Simtikitis, please check out the more than 175 additional episodes available anytime. We got Quiet Riot's Rudy Sarzo, Lee Aaron's Sean Kelly, The Boxes' Jean-Marc Pisapia, Glass Tigers' Alan Frew, Strange Advances' Drew Arnott, Chalk Circle's Chris Tate, and Blue Rodeo's Basil Donovan how they did it directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. 
in uh, recognition of your dad and I guess your parents, every show, Pavlo, you play a song called Cafe Castoria. Sometimes it's two minutes long. Sometimes it's seven minutes long. What is Cafe Castoria? Well, Castoria is the name of the town in the northern part of Greece where my parents are from. And as a kid, I went, you know, I, 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 I'm there every summer. So I have incredible memories. The song was inspired by my visits, my memories. Every night it's a little thank you to my parents for their support from the time that I picked up this instrument at the age of 10, you know. It's the least I can do. I couldn't have done it without them, Andrew. You, you can't do it alone. You need help. And I had a lot of help from my parents for sure. Have you ever sung on any of your albums? And how is your voice, Pablo? Well, I did sing on a few records. Um, but, you know, I'm a writer. So for me, if it felt right, I would sing it. And I sang a few You know, I sang a song called I Feel Love Again, which did get quite a bit of airplay back, you know, 20 years ago. But it just happens by fluke. I, co I collaborate with the best singers in the world. I mean, I, I, I have guests that fly to be on my stage, incredible tenors, I can't open my mouth and these guys are on my stage. So <clears throat> for the most part, I do not sing, you know, but I, a little bit, you know, depend if a fan, listen, if I'm in concert and it happened the other night, and they say, I feel laugh again. I'm like, okay, I'll, then I'll do like a little snippet of it, you know. You are very experimental. You've noted kind of your collaborative. You bring in eclectic guests to perform with you. I guess, why is this important to bring in and collaborate with others? Because it keeps me on my toes, you know, like I don't do 20 shows. I do like a hundred at a time. I do, I've done thousands, as we said. If I was to do the same thing every night, I would get uh, bored. So I always kind of do it for myself. So when I have a guest coming in, okay, what song are we doing? Sometimes it's my song, sometimes another song. We're learning it on the fly. It keeps me fresh and on edge. And I think when I'm like that, the audience will always get a unique concert that night, you know? We did 13 shows. If you had followed me for all 13, Andrew, everyone was different. Different songs, different guests, order. There's no, I, I never have a set list. So whatever happens, happens. If I jump in the audience and I'm feeling good, yeah, that song is going to go from three minutes to seven minutes. I mean, there's no playback here, no playing the track, no lip syncing. Guess what? It's old fashioned. We actually play our instruments. That is, that is old fashioned. You know, you noted it, Pavlo. Do you have deadheads or parrot heads? Do you have anyone who you see, any fans you see show to show? I I do. Um, and they, they they have their own Facebook page, and it's called OPA, uh, Official Pavlo Admirers. There's about a thousand of them there. And yeah, there's, you know, uh, there's a lot of them that come, they'll come on a string of shows. Like they're almost on tour with us. You know, it's really cool. I'm humbled, man. I'm humbled. I really, you know. Well, that must be very gratifying. It is. I mean, I'm listen, I'm just I have a simple life. I'm just trying to get my music out to as many people as I can while I'm here. That's it. Forget the flights and all this kind of stuff. It's to be able to do that, you know. 
Well, clearly you've also been aware of the business side. And if you don't mind, I do like talking about the business side with my guests. Let's talk about the economics of being a professional musician. As you noted, you are a songwriter. I understand from your comments, I guess you are the publisher and owner of your own material. Is that something you did deliberately under kind of good advice from someone? Because as you know, has been a big problem for a lot of artists. Yeah, it has been. And the thing is, like I was saying earlier, when I went to Harris, I started to learn the business, the real part of the business in terms of publishing master licenses and use and you know, marketing and even studied the entertainment law, you know, which really came in handy because I do my own contracts for the most part, you know, now this is something really complex. But I'm doing contracts every day, whether it's you know, the contract to rent Massey Hall for a concert or whether it's the contract with PBS to release my latest television show. Contracts are a big part of the business. So, uh, yeah, I don't, you know, I, everyone says, oh, you're such a good businessman. Well, I don't know if I'm a good businessman. I'm just passionate about my music. So for enable for me to get my music out there, I have to be a good business person. That's why I do it. You know, I don't think I could do it for somebody else, but I do it for myself, you know. Well, I think control is important, and you want to know what's going on in your own house, which clearly you do. Yeah. Now, again, I'm, I'm going to unfortunately be showing both our ages, but you, you used to make your money selling records, and then it was tapes and CDs, but, but no more. My understanding is that streaming makes you no money, but it's simply good for visibility. Is that accurate? It's completely inaccurate. And I don't know why everyone's complaining about it. I mean, I guess, I guess well, I mean, if you only are end up with 25% of your publishing, maybe it doesn't add up. If you own all of your publishing, if you own your masters, all those pennies, Andrew, actually add up to money. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that it's going to change the world, but I've seen my streaming go like right through the roof in the last couple of years. But, you know, I'm my own record company. I don't share with a manager. I don't share with anyone. So it does add up. And we're not even close to where it's going to be. And I've always said this, that the music business will be bigger than it ever has been. It has. It is now the music business now grows in more money than it has ever in, in history. Now, is it going to the majors for the most part? Yes, because they own the Beatles catalogs or whatever else catalogs they own. But little Pablo gets a little chunk of it because I own all my own you know, all my own music and publishing. So no, the, the there's there's a lot of money there for sure. You know what I mean? And and we're just we're just scratching the surface. It, you know, it, it, it'll get more. And one thing that hasn't changed, of course, is touring, and you do so much of it. And presumably, that is a very important part of kind of how you earn a little, how you earn a living. Yeah, it's because I love to play. I mean, being a writer is separate from being a performer. You know, it just happens that I do both, right? And the reason why I love touring is because I'm playing my own music. So it kind of, how do I say it? It um, fuels each other. You know, uh, but I love to perform, and I'm a people's person, as I said in. There's just no better, like, there's no no feeling that I can get anywhere else where I get on stage, I play a song that means something to me, and someone is reacting on the other side. That's just the most incredible feeling that you could ever have as an artist, you know? And uh, it's like a drug. Like, I, I just can't get enough of it, and I love it, you know? Well, clearly not, because you still do so many shows, and you're still well, so active. I, I can't wait to jump on stage tonight, for goodness sake. <laughs> no. Pablo, another income stream would be licensing your songs for movies and TV, which you have done. Any projects that stick in your mind? I think your music was used on the Chris Isaac show. Yeah, I licensed tons of stuff. I mean, I, I, and I you know, So You Think You Can Dance, Kids We Dance to My Music. Uh, I've licensed to lots of TV shows, lots of movies. I mean, there's tons. I mean, 
I remember one, this was a real fun one. So there was, it was called the L word and it was right in the early, early days, like in the, in the, um, in the pilot part of it. And they asked for a song of mine called Santorini Sunset. So I said, yeah, sure. Why not? I think it was like a thousand dollars for the licensing fee and then the residuals. I never thought I would ever see anything else. Well, that series went on to be a global phenomenon. And that little licensing deal that I made with them paid for for 20 years, you know. So you never know how that stuff will turn out, you know. But that's what I'm saying. When you own your publishing, you own your stuff, the pennies add up, you know. And the other extension of that is commercials. Uh, have you had opportunities come up to use your music in commercials? And how do you treat those requests? Uh, commercials, not as much. I've done a few things. Yeah, I mean, it's on a case-by-case basis. I think on one commercial, and it was actually a commercial for Israel. It wasn't even for here. Then what I did for the, they, they liked one of the riffs. And I said, well, I can, and I happened to be in Toronto at that time. And that's where the, the production house was. So I'll just come in and tailor make the riff to the commercial, you know, whatever it was. Uh, and it was a song of mine called Other the Heat. So I went in and I did the riff for them. And they were ecstatic that I would even do that. I'm like, hey. I'm here. We can do it right now. So I, I, I'm a man of action, Andrew. Like, I mean, if, if you if you call me, I pick up the phone unless I'm in the airplane, you know. I call everyone back. I'm always early. You know, uh, I like to get things done. <laughs> Under promise and over deliver. I like yeah, it. That's I it. like it. Now, in addition to streaming being kind of a recent change, another big change is, of course, social media. How important is it to you and, and who handles your social media? Yeah, I, it is one of the part of my career that I'm really bad at, for sure. And it's just basically myself. My wife helps me a little bit, but I just post as I go, man. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that are buying fake likes and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to do it. Like my Facebook, I think, only has like 36,000. It should probably be 500,000. But I don't have the time or the want to sit there and try to figure this out. Oh, I got to get fake this. You know, whoever's there wants to be there. So it is what it is, you know what I mean? So it's great. I post if you follow my post on my travels, but you know, it's uh, that's about it. I don't really think much more past that. Well, when we talk about the real world, you are very well tailored. Do you want to give a shout out to whoever outfits you in those great yes. sets? Of course, of course. Lazarus Dimitriou in Windsor, Ontario. He owns the suit, the suit shop in Windsor. He's custom made and tailored myself and the entire band. Thank you, Lazaro. Thank you. Making us look like a million bucks. And you do. And you do. Now, I cannot have a son of Greece on the podcast without asking about your favorite restaurants on the Danforth. Woo! You're going to get me in trouble. Man. I'm going to get you in trouble. I know everyone there. You know what? They're all fantastic. If I had to pick one, I would probably say Maison. They've been there for years. They're amazing people. And the food is always incredible. Well, I got... Good news for you. I share that with you, and I got a, a bit of a surprise or latest news for you, Pavlo. Yes. Literally, I was just there two days ago. They have now moved just a few doors or blocks down from where they were. Uh, as you may know, they were under a big reconstruction that got held up during COVID, but they've now reopened, and uh, I had a great meal there. So I'm glad awesome. to hear you have... Uh, <laughs> you make me feel good about my choices. Yes, it was a wise choice, Andrew. No question. Pavlo, your father's best advice was, have the courage to do what you love and the drive to do it well. Talk about your father's advice to you. 
Well, my dad was my biggest influence, you know, and because he was an entrepreneur as well, you know, he uh, knew that you got to just put your head down and work hard, you know. You can be as talented as you want, but if you don't work with the with honest intent, the right intent, doing things the right way, it's not always the easy way, but doing things the right way, you'll always have success. Now, what does success mean? Does it mean that you have a million dollars in the bank or 10,000? To me, they're both successful if they're do, if it's doing what you love, you know? Uh, and, and that's it. I, I, you know, again, I always say my father, I was lucky because he really wanted me to follow my dream. In those days, Andrew, if you can maybe attest, you know, the, uh, an immigrant coming from Canada, everybody wanted their kids to be doctors and lawyers, and half my cousins are. They're either, you know, lawyers or doctors, teachers, principals, paramedics. But my dad knew that my passion was in music, you know, and he just said, but educate yourself to the best the extent that you can do uh, and just work hard, you know, and have the courage of love means you got to get up every day and face it, you know. Uh, and I did, you know what I mean? And I followed his advice and I still do it to this day. You know. Excellent. Passion and hard work. That's a great way to close off. What is next for Pavlo Simtikidis? Oh my goodness. So much is going on. Jeez. Uh, tons. I mean, so I, you know, I'm on a, a 35 city little tour right now, almost halfway there. And then, um, I'm working on my fifth television show and it looks like I've narrowed it down to two places. It's very odd, but so it's either going to be at the Acropolis, the, the Heriaticus in Athens, which I've played before. I just haven't, I haven't recorded it, but I'd love to record that as my next TV show. Or I might be doing it from Toronto. So those are the two places. And it's because PBS said to me, you've done four shows. You've done one in Mexico, Greece, and America, but you haven't done it in your hometown. I said, well, I never thought of that, but that's a good idea. Well, now that we're such good friends, I hope my vote counts for more. I want Toronto. Okay. Okay. Listen to me. It'll be the easiest special I've ever done. Doing it on the island of Santorini, Guadalajara, Mexico. The logistics. Doing it in Toronto? Oh, my God. I could, like, it would be so easy. So maybe I should take the path of least resistance this time. I don't You should. Absolutely. A hometown show would be great. So again, on Saturday, October 28th, Brampton on Stage presents Pavlo Live at the Rose Brampton, and you can go for full info and tickets to bramptononstage.ca. Pavlo, to close off, where can we best follow you? Um, well, pavlo.com is my, my website, but Facebook is where I'm really active. And, uh, uh, oh boy, what is it? It's Pavlo, the real Pavlo, I think it's called. And if you just put Pavlo, I'm the only guy. It's me and a Ukrainian wrestler, so... We look very different, so you'll know it's me. <laughs> Get the wrestler or the guitarist, one or the other. Well, I want to thank you for your time. It's been great meeting you, great to get to know you, and I want to wish you continued success and enjoy tonight in Colorado. Yes, thank you, Andrew. Really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. And to the listeners, on behalf of Pavlo Simtikidis, I am Andrew Applebaum saying opa, and thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. What happens when we play outside? We become healthier, both mentally and physically, 
we become more creative and more focused. We connect with nature, each other, and ourselves. Let's Take This Outside, a new podcast hosted by me, Marianne Iveson, an aspiring outdoor athlete and nature lover. I speak to athletes, outdoor professionals, and scientists about their connection to nature, how it affects their performance and everyday life. Let's Take This Outside, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and at letstakethisoutside.ca. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon.